It's the Victorian Variety Show. The serpent shook its head and its tail in an extraordinary manner and advanced toward the ship with open jaws. I had caused the cannon to be reloaded, but he had come so near that all the crew were seized with terror, and we thought only of getting out of his way. He almost touched the vessel and, had I not tacked as I did, he would certainly have come on board. He dived, but in a moment we saw him come up again with his head on one side of the vessel and his tail on the other, as if he was going to lift up and upset us. However, we did not feel any shock. He remained five hours near us, only going backward and forward. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast where I look at a wide variety of phenomena that people living during the Victorian era found fascinating, fun, and frightening all year round. But because I'm recording this episode in the month of October, aka spooky season, aka the most wonderful time of the year, in my humble opinion, I decided to focus my episodes this month on the frightening and take a look at some quote-unquote monsters that loomed large in the minds of many Victorians. My name is Marissa, and the quote I just read, which appeared in an 1818 issue of the British Literary Gazette, which is cited in an article by Stephanie Hall called The Great American Sea Serpent, is credited to one Captain Joseph Woodward of the schooner Adamant, in relation to a sighting he had off the coast of Cape Ann in Massachusetts in May of 1818. If you listened to my previous episode, first of all, thank you, in which I spoke to Lindsay of the Ye Old Crime podcast about the infamous Spring-Heeled Jack, you may remember me mentioning that I have a strong interest in cryptozoology, which, as described by Lauren Coleman in Mysterious America, is, quote, the study of hidden animals, i.e. monsters, end quote. I just finished reading Mysterious America a few days ago and highly recommend it if you're interested in paranormal phenomena in general and cryptids in particular. And even though the majority of the cases Coleman cites in the book occurred in the mid to late 20th century, decades after the Victorian era ended, in his chapter on the Lake Champlain monster, Coleman mentioned some sightings that were reported in New York and Vermont between 1870 and 1900. That made me wonder, hmm, how many other sightings of mysterious sea serpents were reported in the 19th century? As it happens, there were a lot, far more than I can talk about in a single episode. But in addition to descriptions of some of the so-called monsters that were reported, I found a lot of great information on why sea serpents had such a stronghold on the minds of many Victorians, as well as connections with phenomena I've discussed in past episodes, which I always enjoy pointing out. 
So even though sea serpents may not be the first monsters that usually come to mind when we think of Halloween, and I'll admit that I immediately think of vampires and werewolves, and looking at Halloween cards from the Victorian era in the early 20th century, I see a lot of witches, jack-o'-lanterns, and black cats. And believe me, there's nothing wrong with any of that. I love it all. But I think the fact that sea serpents terrified the hell out of so many people during the Victorian era also makes them worthy of an episode during the spooky season. Of course, as with many topics I've discussed on this show, the fascination with mysterious sea creatures didn't just appear out of nowhere in the mid-19th century. Hall believes that tales of sea serpents, quote, may be among the oldest stories of humankind, told in many parts of the world, end quote, which makes sense because they actually exist. Also called, quote-unquote, coral reef snakes, according to Wikipedia, these creatures commonly grow to at least four or five feet long in adulthood, but some of them may grow up to nine or ten feet. They're mainly found in the Indian and Southern Pacific Oceans. I say mainly because there have been some exceptions, such as the yellow-bellied sea snake. Although it seems that most sea snakes that are found in the Atlantic didn't actually originate there, but rather may have gravitated there from, say, the Pacific. They seem to prefer warm, coastal, and shallow waters near land. Hall explains that although Norse myths and legends involving sea serpents are usually thought to be the source of European sea serpent legends, recent studies of DNA and early human migration patterns suggest that sea serpent tales may actually have originated in South Asia and inspired tales in other parts of the world. And even though I'll admit I have a deathly fear of snakes, I do think it's important to stress that although most sea snakes are venomous, the majority are said to be generally mild-tempered and reluctant to bite unless provoked. However, possibly because sea snakes seem to be found mainly in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, in an article called There Are Dozens of Sea Snake Species in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, but None in the Caribbean, Why? Harvey Lily White explains that although various species of sea snake have been around for as long as one to eight million years, sea snakes are not as well known today as are other marine reptiles. Based on that brief description, it seems likely to me that if sea serpents are not so well known today, they were even more mysterious to people in the 19th century who lived in parts of the world where sea snake sightings are not known to occur, at least not naturally. On the one hand, new discoveries were being made during this time in virtually all of the sciences at a faster rate than ever before. But on the other hand, much of what we know even in 2022 is still largely unknown. I mean, even today, how many people know about real-life sea snakes and that many species are considered mild-mannered? I honestly didn't until I started working on this episode. 
This is not to say that the creatures that were spotted in, say, Lake Champlain or the Atlantic Ocean during the 19th century were necessarily sea serpents. It's possible that people in these parts of the world spotted unfamiliar creatures in the water. And if they were familiar with those Scandinavian or Asian tales, said that they'd seen sea serpents possibly in an attempt to make sense of what they'd experienced. Or as I've discussed in previous episodes, many countries in Asia and Oceania were European colonies during the 19th century. And also many people who could afford to do so were traveling in general to quote unquote exotic parts of the world. So I'm even picturing well-traveled Victorians who might have spotted real live sea serpents from a ship or pier in the South Pacific, returning to England or the States and relating their experiences to friends and family members, possibly at dinner parties or some such, spreading an awareness of sea serpents even further. Plus, some academics believe fossil discoveries that were starting to be made in the early 19th century also influence later sea monster sightings, according to Joe Mellor in Sightings of Sea Monsters by Sailors, directly influenced by discovery of fossils in 19th century. I am speculating, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I can understand why Victorians who saw scary creatures in the Atlantic or English Channel believed that they'd seen sea serpents. As Hall explains, quote, Stories and beliefs about sea serpents, together with the difficulties of seeing an animal clearly in the ocean waves, especially at a distance, colored the observations of witnesses. Each sea serpent sighting could influence the way the next was perceived. Drawings and news reports by people who did not observe the incident directly could further influence observations and ideas about mysterious creatures of the sea. End quote. On that note, even those sightings such as that of the Gloucester, Massachusetts sea serpent starting in 1817 or the previously mentioned 1818 sighting occurred before the Victorian era. I think it's important to discuss them because it's very likely that they influenced perceptions of later sightings. As far as the 1817 Gloucester sightings are concerned, the Linnaean Society of New England, which was a short-lived Boston-based group that was created to promote natural history in the early 1800s, interviewed people who'd claimed they'd seen it and published a report in which the society claimed it was a new species, Scoliophus atlanticus, which, according to Hall, was described as, quote, a dark, sinuous animal that moved vertically up and down in the water like a caterpillar, end quote. However, these findings proved controversial, in part because reports of witnesses seemed to vary based on where they'd been when the sighting occurred. For example, people on land described seeing a long line of barrels, whereas those on ships reported seeing a horse's head. The French naturalist Charles-Alexandre Le Sueur examined a specimen that was found on a beach and thought to be the offspring of the serpent and determined that it was an eastern racer, which, for what it's worth, seems to be found near water, but mainly on land and in trees. 
with spinal tumors, according to Wikipedia. Others have proposed that this serpent may have actually been a narwhal or a basking shark, or even a species of a dinosaur that was thought to have been extinct, but it actually survived. Hall tells us that although most people at the time seemed to think there was only one quote-unquote great American sea serpent, it was entirely possible that a number of different creatures were being spotted and labeled sea serpents for lack of a better term. Whatever you think of these findings, they were well-documented sightings, which might have led to increased awareness of the possibility of a sea serpent in the Atlantic. And despite the size of the Atlantic, according to Hall, it seems that a sizable number of people believed that that single serpent lived a long life and traveled far and wide because a well-known sighting off the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa three decades later was thought to be of the same creature. On August 6, 1848, the crew of the HMS Daedalus observed a mysterious creature swimming past the ship with its head out of the water. Captain Peter McCuhay described the creature as, quote, an enormous serpent with head and shoulders kept about four feet constantly above the surface of the sea, end quote, and approximately 60 feet long. McCuhay also noted that, quote, the diameter of the serpent was about 15 or 16 inches behind the head, which was, without doubt, that of a snake. And it was never, during the 20 minutes it continued in sight of our glasses, once below the surface of the water. Its color dark brown and yellowish white around the throat. It had no fins, but something like the mane of a horse, or rather like a bunch of seaweed, washed about its back. End quote. In Victorian cryptozoology, the great sea serpent and its cultural representations, Simon Cook tells us that the Daedalus sighting captured the public's attention and inspired drawings that appeared in British newspapers. Although in these drawings, the serpent actually looks more like a giant eel without a quote-unquote mane. As with the 1817 sightings, there was a great deal of speculation as to what the Daedalus had actually seen. Some suggestions included seal, sea lion, and plesiosaur. And skeptics pointed out a number of inconsistencies in McCuhay's story, such as, for example, how could he estimate the diameter of the neck, but not be able to tell whether the creature had a mane or was cloaked in seaweed? Although Hall suggests that the drawings made in response to the Daedalus sighting became most widely associated with later sea serpent sightings, later descriptions might give us a clear idea of what great American sea serpent witnesses were actually seeing. After observing a serpent-like creature washed up on shore in Bermuda in 1860, W.D. Munro created a sketch which, according to Hall, resembles what is known as a giant oarfish, which even today are sometimes referred to as, quote, the real sea serpents, end quote. Oarfish, which do not have scales, are thought to be the longest bony fish, 
with some growing to over 30 feet in length. They are mostly found in deep, warm waters and are rarely spotted unless they are dead or dying. Hall further explains that sketches made following other sightings resemble the frilled shark, who has a boxy head with gills that look somewhat similar to a mane, such as in the case of the creature that Captain McCuhay described, although I'm not claiming that that's what he actually saw. Because the frilled shark is found in both the Atlantic and around Japan, Hall suggests that similarities between some European and Japanese sea serpent tales might be due to encounters with these creatures. So now that, despite the differences in accounts of the great American sea serpent, I've hopefully given you enough description that you can get some idea of what these sightings might have been like for witnesses. But now, I'm going to talk a little about how they came to be seen as quote-unquote monsters. In addition to the belief that there was only one sea serpent rearing its horse-like or barrel-like head in the Atlantic, many people at the time assumed that these creatures were predatory and likely to attack ships, based on descriptions such as the one in the quote from Captain Woodward that I read at the top of the episode. Hall explains that basking sharks have been known to attack ships when hunted and to jump out of the water to rid themselves of parasites. But actions like these were commonly interpreted as hostile. And for this reason, many people in the 19th century believed that these creatures needed to be killed. It's not surprising that, as Cook explains, a number of sea serpent depictions in Victorian art and literature portrayed them as hostile to humans and ships, such as an 1875 painting by Gustave Dore called The Myths of the Rhine, in which a large sea snake overturns a boat. This type of portrayal wasn't limited to sea serpents. For example, you have probably heard of the Kraken, who, according to legend, is found off the coast of Norway and, depending on the source, is usually depicted as either a giant octopus or squid. During the 19th century, the Kraken was immortalized in literature by Alfred Lord Tennyson, Victor Hugo, and Jules Verne, to name a few. Cook suggests that fear of the unknown played a role in these portrayals, telling us that, quote, in an age when Darwinism challenged the benevolence of God's creation and paleontology suggested that life was merely a struggle met by extinction, the notion that monsters might exist was a reminder of the fact that the world was not necessarily bright and beautiful, but a matter of animal brutality and mindlessness, end quote. And Hall suggests that even though the 19th century was an exciting time for scientific discovery, and many people were enthusiastic about the idea that there might be a scientific explanation for mysterious creatures like sea serpents. At the same time, the belief that science can't explain everything lingered, which I think we've seen previously in my discussion of Victorian era spiritualism and also that of certain death and mourning rituals during this period. However, Tales about sea serpents were often as entertaining as they were terrifying. 
In addition to the examples that I just mentioned from art and literature, even stories in newspapers tended to be written so that they could be read aloud and resembled adventure stories, according to Hall. However, this quote-unquote adventure aspect of sea serpent tales may also have led to witnesses of sea serpents being ridiculed, particularly in the case of Captain McHughey and the Daedalus. According to Cook, an illustration by G.A. Sela gave the serpent an ornamental head and coils that resembled a corkscrew, suggesting that McHughey's report, quote, may have been a drunken hallucination owing more to a bottle of wine than to any real encounter with a strange denizen of the sea, end quote. In addition, the serpent proved to be a handy metaphorical device for satirical publications like Punch, who, as a commentary on violent social conflict, gave the large beast a human face that stared down several European leaders as they cowered in a tiny boat, and the puppet show, which portrayed the serpent as a long train with an angry face that gobbled up investors' money. Regardless of whether the sea serpent was used to represent a social issue or the unknown, however, Cook points out that the wide variety of representations in different types of media helped to make the seas a tad less mysterious, and sea serpents became a part of everyday life. For example, the sea serpent's curvilinear shape became a common theme in Art Nouveau design. Cook makes a few more points that I find interesting. He suggests that sea serpents are no longer seen in the world's oceans and claims that this proves they're mythological. However, he does connect the serpent described by the Daedalus crew and the types of quote-unquote lake monsters described in Coleman's book, as well as the Loch Ness Monster, who was identified as such in 1933, despite the fact that spottings occurred in Loch Ness for centuries before then. Cook describes Nessie as, quote, a direct link with Victorian serpents and repeats many of its features, hardened into a series of tropes, end quote, and debunks the claims that are often made that Nessie is a, quote unquote, marine dinosaur, specifically a plesiosaur. I am not about to say what I think Nessie is or isn't, but I will say that as someone who describes themselves as a quote-unquote skeptical believer, which means even though I don't believe in everything and try to look for natural reasons to weird phenomena that occur around me, I'm also open to possibilities, especially when it comes to bodies of water. I do think it's arrogant for us to assume that we know about everything that's swimming around in the deepest recesses of the Atlantic Ocean or the middle of the Pacific or even a large deep lake. And although in some cases we can probably determine what some witnesses in the Victorian era who claimed they'd seen sea serpents actually saw, we don't actually know what all of them saw and we never will. And I think that's okay. Not knowing what's out there, but keeping an open mind as to what might be, is what encourages some intrepid souls to go out there and look for quote-unquote hidden animals. According to Cook, quote, encouraged to study nature, 
which became a respectable occupation for gentlefolk. The Victorian public was resistant to the notion that the zoological record was complete and probably only charted a part of God's creation, end quote. I think that instead of assuming Victorians who believed in sea monsters as clinging to superstition or being drunk at the time they spotted something unusual, this belief that the zoological record is incomplete is something positive because it keeps us curious and, I think, can help us appreciate this planet a bit more, which, I think, is more important today than ever before. But now, I would love to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvarie1. And if you'd like to support this podcast financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or leave a tip if you're listening on Good Pods or by visiting my link tree at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, one word. I'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, I would like to give a quick shout out to Jason and Lisa with the Designated Quizzers podcast. I really appreciate all of their support. And I recently had the chance to talk to both of them for an upcoming episode of their show. I think that they were going to put that episode out a few days after this one comes out. So definitely pop over to Designated Quizzers wherever you listen to your podcasts and find out what we talked about. And I want to thank all of you who've listened to this episode up to this point. Like I said at the beginning, I don't know if this topic is scary in the same way that we usually think of when it comes to Halloween, but I definitely think it's one worth looking at because of its ties with art and literature and the many scientific discoveries that were being made during the Victorian era. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And since I have one more October episode left, it will have some Halloween-related theme. I can promise you that. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a bit from the very beginning of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I will include a link to as well as all the other sources that I used in the show notes. I chose this passage because on the one hand, I think it demonstrates how sea monsters were incorporated into popular literature of the time. But, as much good literature does, I think it conveys a sense of the combined fear and excitement that real people felt regarding the mysteries of the sea during the Victorian era. The year 1866 was signalized by a remarkable incident, a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon, which doubtless no one has yet forgotten. Not to mention rumors which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind. Even in the interior of continents, 
seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, captains of vessels, skippers, both of Europe and America, naval officers of all countries, and the governments of several states on the two continents were deeply interested in the matter. For some time, past vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object, spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent, and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. The facts relating to this apparition, entered in various logbooks, agreed in most respects as to the shape of the object or creature in question, the untiring rapidity of its movements, its surprising power of locomotion, and the peculiar life with which it seemed endowed. If it was a whale, it surpassed in size all those hitherto classified in science. Taking into consideration the mean of observations made at diverse times, rejecting the timid estimate of those who assigned to this object a length of 200 feet, equally with the exaggerated opinions which set it down as a mile in width and three in length, we might fairly conclude this mysterious being surpassed greatly all dimensions admitted by the learned ones of the day, if it existed at all. And that it did exist was an undeniable fact. And with that tendency which disposes the human mind in favor of the marvelous, we can understand the excitement produced in the entire world by this supernatural apparition.